If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. What kind of fun is waiting for you at Kings Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at Kings Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. Kings Island is now open weekends. The world's most famous spy is James Bond, the fictional character created by British writer Ian Fleming. There have been more than 20 movies made based on Bond. He's fighting villains, you know, Dr. No, Goldfinger, Oddjob. And of course, there is the theme song, which you recognize in the first moment it starts. But there are real spies out there in the world doing real spycraft. And it has a lot less to do with handsome British guys jumping out of airplanes or running across crocodiles, and a lot more to do with libraries and nondescript houses. That is what actual spycraft looks like. It is quiet. It is often boring. It is also totally fascinating. And today, our Places editors, Jonathan Carey and Michelle Cassidy, have two stories about real-world espionage, espionage that may have bored James Bond to tears, but is nonetheless how it actually happens. Every library holds its share of mysteries, from long-forgotten manuscripts to ancient artifacts. They are also bastions of solitude, the perfect place to hold meetings, conduct research, and sometimes share secrets. But rarely do those secrets ever come to light. Except for the case of the Wertheim study located inside the New York Public Library in Manhattan, New York. The room was created in the 1960s by Barbara Tuckman and is often referred to as exceedingly quiet and is dedicated to scholars and writers. The Wertheim study and its veil of silence became the perfect place for Earl Edwin Pitts to conduct his business an FBI agent who would later become a spy for Russia. Pitts began working at the FBI in 1983 and moved to the New York Bureau four years later when he was assigned to a counterintelligence squad focused on Russian affairs. Pitts was part of a surveillance operation keeping tabs on Russian diplomats in the U.S. who were believed to be spies. And for unknown reasons, Pitts sent a letter to one of those diplomats that gave him a heads up that he was under surveillance by the FBI, and Pitts also requested a meeting. The diplomat shared that letter with Russian intelligence, and they saw it for exactly what it was, an FBI agent willing to betray his country for money. He was then introduced to Alexander Karpov, 
who became his Russian handler. The duo met in several places over the next couple of years to share information. And one of the places that they frequented the most was the Wertheim study. Pitts would casually make his way through the public library, passing the Aston Memorial and traversing the marble hallway until he reached room 228. And the information that Pitts handed over ran the entire spectrum of a counter-surveillance operation. From the mundane, such as the daily operations around the Bureau, to the most severe, revealing the names of spies. Over the course of his career working for Russia, Pitts received well over $100,000 for his information. In what would be an ironic twist, it was actually the diplomat who Pitts first contacted who put him on the radar of his colleagues when he himself began working for the U.S. intelligence. When the FBI began to look into Pitts' travel and financial records, it raised quite a few red flags. But they still weren't sure. More evidence was needed. They had to catch Pitts with his hand in the proverbial cookie jar. So, they set up a sting operation. The team sent an undercover intelligence officer disguised as a Russian agent who pitched Pitts on reactivating his spy career. Pitts willingly agreed and once again began meeting with Russian officials. Only this time, they were undercover FBI agents. In 1996, while working at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, Pitts was confronted about his espionage activities. And after a two-year investigation, he was arrested. Pitts would never go to trial. In 1997, he pleaded guilty to conspiring and attempting to commit espionage and was sentenced to 27 years in prison. He was released in 2019. Pitts was only the second agent in the Bureau's history to face espionage charges. So, why did Pitts decide to spy for the Russian government? Well, at his sentencing, Pitts stated, I gave into an unreasoning anger, which some believe was linked to his dissatisfaction with his wages and work at the agency. So, if you ever find yourself in the New York Public Library in Manhattan, New York, take a moment to visit the Wertheim study and walk in the footsteps of former spies. I mean, who knows what other secrets the study holds? So next time you go to the library, be sure to stay quiet, not just because it's polite, but because you never know who might be listening. The next story uh, does not happen in a library, but instead happens in an equally unthrilling place. It happens in a very nondescript house in Washington, D.C. Michelle Cassidy has more. The house at 2619 Wisconsin Avenue in Washington, D.C. would be tempting to any prospective homebuyer. It's a charming three-story brick with a big front porch and a grassy lawn that sits in a quiet residential neighborhood. It's also located immediately across the street from the Russian embassy, 
which in the late 1970s made it especially attractive to one buyer in particular, the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation. Picture this. It's 1977. We're deep in the midst of the Cold War, and the Soviet Union has started building a shiny new embassy. It was designed by a Soviet architect, a guy who was also behind a number of important buildings in Moscow. This new embassy is going to sit on a hill that offers a sweeping view of the city, one of the highest elevations in the District of Columbia. People started to worry that this location would give the Soviets an ideal position to eavesdrop on radio communications from the White House and the Capitol. American newspapers were running reports about the laser beam listening devices installed by Soviet technicians that could be aimed at a window and pick up any conversation inside the room just by reading vibrations in the glass. This was the latest development in a history of espionage between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And of course, U.S. intelligence agencies had their own plans to keep an eye and an ear on the Soviets. One particular plan was called Operation Monopoly. It started with purchasing the lovely brick home on the other side of Wisconsin Avenue to use for surveillance. An FBI employee moved into the house, but according to most accounts, the cover story was not terribly convincing. People were frequently seen coming and going from the house, but the curtains were always drawn and no mail was ever delivered. Neighbors spotted cameras in the windows pointed in the direction of the Russian embassy. It had an unusual design feature, which was three skylights on the roof of the house pointed towards the embassy. Now, I'm no spy. You're probably not a spy either. From our outsider's perspective, this all seems a little obvious for the world of high-stakes spycraft. There's a chance that that might be because the real undertaking for Operation Monopoly was happening underground. The heart of this project was a tunnel that would run underneath the Russian embassy, where intelligence agencies wanted to plant equipment that would let them eavesdrop on all kinds of private conversations. But building this kind of tunnel was slow and difficult work, made extra complicated by the need to keep it a secret. The FBI had blueprints of the embassy, but it wasn't clear to them how exactly this tunnel would intersect with different parts of the building. It was hard to tell if they would end up beneath a conference room where secrets of national importance were being discussed, or a janitor's closet, or a bathroom. They had agents pose as construction workers to get information about the building's layout, and the FBI allegedly recruited actual construction workers to go inside and plant bugs. All the while, they were digging this tunnel deep underground. We don't know very much about what it actually looked like. It was said to be large enough for an adult to stand up comfortably inside, and it was packed with different types of listening equipment that could be used to record conversations and tap into telephone lines. But all of that equipment kept failing. On the surface, it seemed like the tunnel construction process had gone undetected. They had spent years building it without the Soviets commenting on the espionage happening underground. 
But by the early 1990s, the FBI began to suspect that the failure of so many of their eavesdropping attempts was more than just bad luck. There had to be a mole within their ranks. After a long and strenuous investigation, they eventually found that the Soviets were entirely aware of Operation Monopoly. An FBI agent by the name of Robert Hansen was working as a double agent, and the tunnel beneath the Russian embassy was one of the many secrets he had revealed to the KGB. When Operation Monopoly became public knowledge in 2001, it was the talk of the neighborhood, along with the not-so-subtle spy house. Neighbors told the Washington Post that they had seen cameras through the windows and people coming and going through the back door, looking like they were switching shifts. The FBI has acknowledged the existence of this tunnel, but they've never revealed where in the neighborhood they began digging it from. People have speculated that it was either this observation house on Wisconsin Avenue or another house that's now abandoned and is located around the corner on the other side of the embassy. We might never know the truth for sure, as it's reportedly been sealed with concrete. Meanwhile, the house on Wisconsin Avenue is still standing, looking as charming and vaguely suspicious as ever. According to DC property records, the house last sold in 2014. And in the years since, there have been proposals to turn the space into a homeless shelter or a retirement community. None of those projects have come to fruition just yet. But as of 2023, whoever is currently responsible for the house has it, along with the rest of the block, covered in signs and flags expressing support for Ukraine. Special thanks to Michelle Cassidy and Jonathan Carey for, as always, bringing us wonderful stories. There are two examples of many of the espionage stories found in Atlas Obscura. Uh, If you're curious, you can go and search the espionage tag, and we will put a link in the show notes to both of these stories and all of the wonderful world of real-life espionage. See you next time. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. The production team includes... Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Baudelaire, Gabby Gladney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. And this episode was sound designed by Manolo Morales and mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There is a link in the episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Skip the waiting room. TireRack.com now offers convenient mobile tire installation in select areas. Simply shop TireRack.com for your next set of tires, and at checkout, choose Tire Rack Mobile Tire Installation. An expertly trained technician will arrive with your tires and install them on-site, at home, at the office, wherever you are. You'll spend less time waiting and more time doing the things you enjoy. TireRack.com. The way tire buying should be. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.